0: Okay. Well, since since I'm here already, yeah, sure. Anthony, Good. thanks a lot for coming down from Calgary. <clears throat> um, my question relates to... My name is Knut Peterson, by the way. Mm-hmm. Uh, my question relates to... Uh, I'll just ask it, like, do you think uh, Albertans, uh, Alberta uh, PCs are still riding the coattails of Peter Lougheed?
1: Yes, I think... In some ways, that's absolutely true. That, uh, that I, I was on a panel at uh, the CBC uh, when the uh, Tories turned 40, and I sat next to the former deputy premier, whose name escapes me. It starts with G. Um, no, uh, what's his name? Oh, sorry. Anyway, and he went on national television. Went on national, and he said the problem with the Tories is. Uh, they're, they're talentless. They've got the average. The average member of caucus is basically an idiot. And I blushed because I would never have said that about. I mean, he could. He was a member of the party and a former deputy premier. And uh, Garretson. Garretson is it? Garretson. Anyway. Uh, and so, to that degree, the, the 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 party that came in 1971 responded was a a new a breath of fresh air in 1971, responding to a fairly stodgy set of political institutions and a party that have been in power a long time. And that has been in gentle decay ever since. Why? It's sort of human nature. If somebody comes to you and says, look, we're going to change the world, join me, come and run for me, you can buy into that. If you're a fairly... If you've got a good job but you're a smart person and you want to change the world, you can buy into that. By the time you're in for 40 years, it gets difficult to know just how you will appeal to people to make them run for the party. And the other question is you get, you get vested interests you know people get involved and then they like to pass on their seat or implicitly pass it on to somebody else and you get these vested interests that make hard for new and different ideas to get into any party. So in that sense yes they are resting on it but it's also started to cost them and uh, it's pretty clear that the, the party and one of the things that Jim Prentice has noticed is that the party needs to be renewed from within with, with new people and new ideas and more energy Uh, But that's hard to do. And, again, he's done it to the degree he has done it by by managing local nominations. He has offended one of the deep populist traditions of Alberta, which is that local people get to select their local candidates. And uh, he was poorly advised or doesn't understand how many people within his own party hold that to be a very important principle... And, we're, and so I know a number of people who have left the party or decided not to work for the party because they, they think he just doesn't understand that this is the sort of party we are. Local association members do this. So, yes, they're riding on it, but it's a decaying asset, sort of a wasting asset. <coughs>
2: My name is Henning Mündel, and first of all, thank you very much for bringing this talk during the midst of our provincial election campaign, okay. and very unabashedly, we have two NDP candidates here, my wife, Bev, back there, and Maria, who's not sitting here, but she's standing behind me at the phone, but, uh, at the mic, but I want to ask, what other provincial candidates are there in the room? Any others? Okay, fine.
1: So, so you, you made the point? You
2: want to say? Okay. Yeah, Your question. But that wasn't my question. Yeah. My question was really, so is Prentice, does he want to be so counter to the very popular Ralph Klein, who admittedly in his last term, self-admittedly, had no plan yeah. that he's going to go for a 10-year plan and therefore... Somehow he's going to triumph.
1: Yeah. Well, my answer to that is that anybody who who thought about Alberta politics and thought that running against Ralph Klein's approach was a good way of going doesn't understand Alberta politics. Again, it's important to distinguish between policies and somebody's political appeal. You would be crazy to put Ralph Klein up as a person to run against, as a model. And so you've captured, though, very nicely the mistake he made. The 10-year plan... Well, I put it this way, it's not a mistake. I, as, I point, as I say here, one way of dealing with Alberta's problems is to say we need a 10-year plan. These cycles are killing us. We should put some of this money away. We should figure out how to balance our taxes and our expenses in a more rational, thoughtful way. I think that's technically perfectly true. It's hard to sell to people, right? Why? Well, it happens a long way down the road... You know, people, oh, short-termism, well, there's a reason for that. It's not like politicians are idiots. They look around and say, you know, these people are never paying attention. They only pay attention election time. Then, Of course, present company excluded. But, uh, you know, most most voters aren't paying attention. So why would I want to ha- hamstring myself with a 10-year plan when people won't even remember it in two years? So there, is, there are lots of... Rational reasons why politicians act the way they do this ten year plan I think just indicates that uh, the, the premier isn't doesn 't have a, a good a good sense of the the pulse and rhythm of alberta politics you know I, I like the ten year idea yeah. you know as a, a sort of I believe in rational government right. I like that, but i don 't think that 's easy to sell and bluntly it was a wimp of a budget, and I say that again, not because of which way I, I would like the budget to go, I certainly have preferences, but it was a sort of wimp of a budget, he he built up this, you know, here comes Godzilla, and the thing came around the corner, it was this high, you know, what the, what, now we thought we were going to have a huge budget, a big change, and we got a, so in some ways he wasted a lot of political capital, you know, if, if he was going to cut and slash, this was the year to do it in, and he didn't, so I don't know how he calculates his political capital, but it, you know, I, I, yeah. I answer interesting question?
3: Thanks. Terry Shellington. Thank you very much for a, a very refreshing approach to uh, politics. <clears throat> okay, thanks. I am intrigued by your your, com, off, your kind of offhand comments about the liberals mm-hmm. uh, not getting populism. Yeah. I, I think that uh, John Cretchen was probably a populist, but I, yes. I wonder, do the provincial liberals insist on picking bookish people rather than uh, people of the uh,
1: uh, uh, grassroots, or how do you explain that? Uh, You're right about Jean Chrétien, absolutely. his little guy from Shawinigan, some of which was a bit of a paid-up act, was was an appeal. And and what did it allow him to do? It allowed him to move from the left. If you look at what happened after the 1993 election, he moved from a left-wing agenda to a right-wing agenda. If you look at his left-wing agenda, the get rid of the free trade deal, get rid of the GST, raise spending. What did he do? He threw the Liberal book away and he got the reform book. And he went, OK, we're going to cut spending, we're going to keep the GST, we're going to keep free trade. Uh, and the, the only substantial cut in Canada's history, in Canada's history, to government federal government expenditures happened under the Paul Martin, the martin Cretchen government. $40 billion, the only time in Canadian history that the size of federal, or the federal uh, expenditures actually went down a bit instead of either slowing down or going up. The only time. And that little guy from Schwinnigan Act was, or whatever it was, was allowed him to say, you have to trust me. Things are bad. I'm sorry. I know I said A, but I'm going to do not A. And what did we do? We awarded him a larger majority at the subsequent election because we believed him. We believed that he did that for the good of the country. And if you want a model of how you can get people to do things they don't like, cut spending. Now, he was lucky. He had the provinces between him and the voters, so he screwed the provinces first, as it were. He was hard on the provinces, and the provinces had to figure out how to be hard on us. Uh, so he was—he was a smart guy. It's a bit harder in provincial politics to do that, but you can play with the cities that way. <coughs> but anyway, uh, so that you can see that is a gr- a really good example of how a populist runs on a different plays politics differently, and they can move around on this left and right political a- axis and play to their advantage. Right, And then later on, after 2000, the Liberals became much more left-wing and started spending money again. And that was, again, a move that was allowed because they'd garnered this uh, room to move on the populist spectrum. So it's a it's a fascinating game that you can play uh, if you if you have these two two ways of thinking. I'm not sure if I answered your original question now. I got caught up with Cretchen. The, the provincial <coughs> Liberals have never been populist. And, of course, it's hard to forgive them for not giving the... Uh, the um, the university to Calgary. I have a long memory. You know the you know the story about how they uh, the legislature was meant to be in Edmonton and the the university was meant to be in Calgary, and uh, Rutherford said, "Well, we'll uh, we'll put the legislature in the the legislature can be in Edmonton, but we'll put uh, the university in Strathcona, which isn't Edmonton, and of course it wasn't then; it was a small town. So, not that I have a long memory or anything, but uh, <laughs> no, the 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 Liberals. The Liberals are in a very unusual position in Alberta but they are increasingly on the prairies and that is that the, the political benefit to being a Liberal in a province like Alberta is not clear. I mean, you may be intellectually, ideologically a Liberal uh, but it's not clear why you're in the party if you are thinking about winning elections. So there are other things that drive membership uh, that, that are much more connected to federal politics even though you're talking about a provincial party. Um, and you see that with what's happened in this coming federal election. We've lost provincial MLA's to the federal party, and that indicates, I think, something about the nature of the Liberal Party in Alberta. Their real heart is in federal politics, not in provincial politics, and that's unfortunate. And I know there are people in the room who love the Liberal Party. Um, It's not... This is just, uh, it's, something to do, it's a partly a function of, this, of the state of the Liberal Party's vote share and the way in which it survived over the last 30 or 40 years. Remember, in, although, that said, I always have to remind my students that, you know, um, if Nancy Bukowski had won, that we may have had, a, I think on balance, we would have had a Liberal government under DeCor. So it's not like the Liberals weren't able to win. Now they are in a very parlous situation, and that slide, I think, shows you they've shrunk and they've become irrelevant. It's not like they couldn't turn that around. The right leader, you can always recover, but it's very, very tricky. And other parties keep ladling nasty names on the Liberals, some of which are just not true, right, that the Liberals are inherently anti-Albertan or don't fit in. On the populist thing, yes, that's a problem, but you can change that. A, a Liberals could fit in. Um, So it's not a a problem if you get the right leader or the right attitude.
2: Hi, I'm Maria Fitzpatrick. And uh, I was quite intrigued by your uh, comment on uh, basically the failure to plan or uh, presenting that. So how do you uh, get your population Mm. into the frame of mind where they're going to accept not necessarily a 10-year plan, although you could have a 10-year yes. plan. Yes, yeah, you'd, you'd but, have
1: it, just wouldn't say it. Yeah, yeah. Uh,
2: but a short-term plan yeah. and uh, show that you can make some progress so that you can build on that.
1: I think, I mean, there are other ways. There are always more options than we can possibly know, uh, in particularly in politics. If you're, if you're a smart person, if the right crisis comes along, the right person comes along at the right moment, you can do all sorts of things. You know, Ralph Klein would not have been elected leader of the Tories under most circumstances, I think. But the circumstances of 1993 made the Tories open to an outsider. Right? And that was very interesting. Uh, a relative outsider. He had support in the Cabinet, but, a rel- you know, an unusual choice. Somebody who wasn't... You know, Peter who would not have selected Ralph Klein mm-hmm. as, he, as a leader and never really felt comfortable... I think it's fair to say with Ralph Klein. Um, so, so that's a circumstance. But here, here I, I didn't speak much of this. Let me. Here are two possibilities. Rachel Notley, if she was to become premier, how would she do that? I hope she would say, "Look, we're all in this together. My dad loved Alberta. I love Alberta. We've given our lives to public service. We don't want to. I don't want to make anything out of this as premier. I want us to make something out of this as a province, Alberta first. So we're going to have a difficult conversation." where nobody's going to be hurt disproportionately. I'm not going to go after any segment of this society. I'm going... So the first thing is, some of, your, some of your political... You have to put away, and this is going to be the hard... If, this is going to be Rachel Notley's most difficult problem. She's going to have to convince her party not to go hard after corporations, not to, go hard, not to push some of their great shibboleths, their great sacred cows, but to stay calm and to be more populist than ideological. So you say, I want everybody in the room to join me in loving Alberta. And together we're going to all suffer a bit, but we're going to share that suffering and it's going to be actually a badge of honour to have suffered. Right? That's the populist. The patrician says, look, I'm smart. I may be smarter than all you. I'm, I'm not speaking for myself. I know you're all smarter than me. But if I were the patrician politician, I would say, you know, and you believed it. Uh, and you can. You know, politicians do convince people that the, of this genius moment, that they can be a genius. Um, and I'm going to show you the way out of the valley. Of, you know, we're going to we're going to go together, walk together, out of this valley and into the light. And so, and here's the plan. And I think Prentice could have done it. Oh, he maybe still will, <clears throat> but it's a, it's a surprising. His current policies are a surprising mix. Um, he's missed an opportunity, right? If he really part of one of the unusual things psychologists tell us is that if you want to lead people, you have to convince them. That they're, that they're worth leading and that the, the, are the benefits or the suffering have to be worth it. So Prentice would have been better off to have cut government, from this perspective, to have cut government spending much more than he did and tell Albertans we're in this together and suffering is part of what we'll, what's necessary to be good Albertans and will lead us out. And so the Ralph Bucks, if, uh, if anybody... Ralph Klein was determined... This is the nice, absolutely perfectly nice part of Ralph Klein. He was determined to give Ralph Bucks because he was convinced he'd given a personal commitment to each Albertan that when we had suffered from cuts we would then benefit. Now 400 bucks, you know, we could argue about certainly the public policy benefit of 400 bucks but for Ralph Klein it was the fulfilment of his understanding of Albertans and Alberta politics that he gives everybody 400 bucks. Thank you for the cuts, the pain you went through with us together, and here's your reward. And it's a very interesting. You know, we can argue about the merits or not, but you can see that sort of politician can do things with people because they are on the same team rather than anything else. And that's so. I think you know, if if Notley were to win this election, I fully expect I would fully expect that in time that we would get a PST. Um, that we would get maybe a change in the way the royalty regimes are enforced, at least, uh, and things like that. But it would take time. She has to move people with her rather than get ahead of them. You know, Rolf Klein would say, and, I mean, he said these things, and I wrote, you know, it can't be real, but he, you'd say, well, you know, how do you lead? Well, you see where the group's going, and go and stand in front of them. <laughs> and, you'd, you know, you say, well, he's not going to win a Nobel laureate with that, right? <laughs> But on the other hand, there was a there was a deep sort of sense of that's how we thought about politics. You sort of looked around and said, Well what do people want me to do? What what are we sort of here for? Okay. That seems reasonable. Let's all go and do that together. It sort of made common sense. Anyway.
0: My name is Mary Shillington. Thank you very much for your presentation and your sense of humor your, <laughs> and your lovely accent. Thank you. um, you probably heard that last night this room was full with yes. the Left uh, regist East uh, Forum. And a question that was asked was, uh, um, how do we get people to vote? And you, you know the figures. that yes. I think it's 28% in Alberta that voted uh, last time. <laughs> uh, and I know that from canvassing. Uh, I ran into, in two blocks, four men. Between the ages of mid 20s and 40s, who had never voted and did not think they would want to vote again. Uh, one guy said he was too lazy. Uh, so, what would you, what kind of advice would you get, and what are you seeing in the research you're doing?
1: Okay, well, uh, I, I know everybody in the room is going to vote, so I can tell this story. I uh, was invited down to the city of Calgary to give a, a lecture on voting, and I stood at the front and I started by saying, well, personally, and this was to a group of young people, maybe 100, 250. 100 or 200. I said, personally I don't mind if you don't vote it makes my vote worth more and the, per- the woman who organised it was up the back going
3: <laughs>
1: <coughs> I'm a bit contrarian about voting I love voting I vote whenever I can I try not to vote under anybody else's name all that stuff, <laughs> exactly no dead people Uh, I do have a contrarian view on many things as uh, (coughs) Monica, my Lethbridge wife will tell you Uh, I'm often contrarian Um, I think we've constructed voting incorrectly we construct voting as a collection of our individual interests together to tell government what to do, that is nonsense it's palpably nonsense Uh, and if you want to know the mathematics of it you look up something called Arrow's theorem which will show you that you cannot add people's preferences up into a coherent order You cannot rank things if you ask more than about 10 people, more than three options. You can't get a a logical ranking. But that's that's the mathematics. The reality is, I think, this. Why do you vote? You vote for two reasons. You vote because if you don't vote, people like you, people with interests like you, not your interests, but people like you and people with interests like you aren't heard as much. But more importantly, it's a marker of your membership of a community. We should not vote so our interests are taken account of, we should vote because it's our obligation as good citizens. It's a marker of our desire to support our community and to uh, have a say as a, our subsection of that community, for that subsection to be represented in some way in our political discourse. And what we've done is that we've fallen for the, the what I think of the radical individualism of the modern era, as if it's all about me and my interests. But... Any intelligent person knows that can't be true. If I do or do not vote, my personal interest... That's not going to have any impact. The chances of my vote having a sway on anything are so close to zero that they are zero. So if you try and convince people, and as we have done with hundreds, billions of dollars around the world, that it's about their interests being included, we are simply barking up the wrong tree. The right tree to bark up is, this is an obligation, it's a marker of your love for or commitment to your community... And the I mean some of the research that tells us this is the wonderful research in America at the moment, where they've had done this natural experiments during elections. When you go home, you put a marker on your side, on your house, big green sticker if you voted. What happens? Everybody votes. Why? Because voting is not an individual action; it is a collective action, and we are embarrassed if our neighbours know that we are not interested enough in our community not to vote. So if I were if I were King of Canada for a day, or King of Alberta, even better, I would give everybody a big green, purple, blue, red, right? but right, 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 uh, Alberta rose, pink. And I would say when you go home, you stick it on your somewhere big on your house. So you are telling everybody, I've done mine, have you done yours? So that's that's my view. <laughs> Professor, I, I, uh,
0: the name is Frank Toth. I'm, I'm, I'm a little negative to some of the assertions you made. Okay, uh, you have a right to your feelings, mm-hmm. uh, and I understand why Mr. Harper donated twenty-seven million dollars to your university. He was the head man of the Fraser Right Wing Fraser Institute, and that uh, I would like the selection co- committee of the SACPA to have few professors. From Lethbridge University and you to have a little debate here, it would be very very interesting.
1: Okay. Now, secondly. Well, hold on. No, hold on. No, before you say, it, I, I, I'm sorry. I have to respond to that. I've never had any money from Mr. Harper. My department, I don't think, I has never that. has never directly benefited. So I really wish you hadn't had hadn't. hadn't Cast whatever aspersion you'd. No, you'd, no, no, no. I no, mean, it's not that's just not a nice. That is not a nice way to treat a visitor. The I'm University
0: sorry. of Calgary is the alma mater of, of Mr.
1: Harper. The fact that Mr. Harper went to University of Calgary does not condemn the rest of us. No, I didn't. So <laughs> let's not talk about it.
0: You take it. You take it for what it's worth. Secondly, and thirdly, I, I think most people abhor yeah. pollsters. There's many sane countries don't have allow pollsters when after the writ is dropped. Okay. No,
1: so that's, no, that's not true. They don't. There's usually a restriction. There's often a restriction as you come up to an election. Some do absolutely ban. Yes, yes. But most countries allow some form of polling. Yes. But there's a uh, there's a, a media ban within the last week or so of the election. Yeah, but that's
0: you true. said yourself, professor, that if you got fifty thousand dollars, yes. we'll do a poll. Yes. Okay. Now, the, the, I your question, please. That, uh, we have asked at this place right here, the treasury of Alberta, the treasurer, what our royalties were. He didn't know. He was asked. He was asked if there's a trace on on the royalties. They, they keep track of royalties. He didn't know. Okay. So the I, I just your question, please. The only person, country, should be able to talk royalties. Your question, please. Okay. Okay. They talk royalties. Is Norway. They got $1.1 trillion in their pot. So do you know, Professor, what are... I got five, five audited reports. Can you tell us what our royalties are today?
1: No. I don't study royalties.
0: You don't know?
1: I do not study royalties. I can certainly... Royalty, actually, the application of royalties, which I have known in different times, uh, is very complex and depends what you mean by royalties. If you mean everything going down a pipe... Which means all the all the uh, offshoots of oil and gas. It's extraordinarily complicated. So no, I can't. But I don't pretend to. I've never said I do, and I don't pretend to. Um, I certainly think that we we may. It's certainly true that we most probably don't get enough out of our royalties. Can
2: you talk about royalties that you don't even know what we
1: get? I never mentioned how much we get. Well, actually, I do know how much we get in terms of gross numbers, but I have no idea how much we charge for a toluene or a uh, you know another element of the gas that we send down a pipe. I don't know that.
0: Next questioner.
3: My name is Douglas Mitchell, and I will not apologise for my accent. Um, I really appreciate, Dr. Sayers, your uh, independent. Um, An unbiased evaluation of what's happening here in Alberta. And uh, I think after listening to two nights of rants from four political candidates, it's pleasing to hear this. I would, however, like to ask a question which follows up on what um, uh, the first question you received Mm -hmm. regarding personalities. And I have, we came here 39 years ago, it's 1976. And I would like to know whether, and at that time, the Trudeau name was blackballed. I feel there's still a residual overflow from that, which is affecting our friend. He's a different person altogether from his father. And I would like you to, uh, to tell me whether you think that the Trudeau name now still has any, uh, has any uh, impact on what's going to happen in the coming election?
1: Sure. Uh, I I know Kent here and uh, and his uh, campaign team, some people on his campaign team, and they have certainly told the Federal Government Party not to send Trudeau into Alberta during uh, this election or likely as least as possible during the upcoming federal election. So the presumption amongst Liberals in Alberta is that the Trudeau name is still problematic. And... It's important to sort of understand what that means. It may not actually mean very much more. That doesn't mean it's not important, though, than there is an image around the name. It's, not a, it's like NEP. Most people who hate the NEP don't know what the NEP was. Apparently, you know, well, this is certainly my experience. If you ask them, they say, well, something to Trudeau and, they, and the price of gas or something can... But they, don't really, but they know they don't like it. And Tr- the name Trudeau has some of that halo effect in Alberta. It's not, it's not his policies. It's not him as a person. It's, at the, the, it's, a, it's like a sting. You, know, you respond to it. And so certainly the Liberal Party is worried about how Trudeau plays in Alberta. I have to say, though, I've been at three events where he was where he, where he came to, that he came to here, uh, and the, the line-up for people wanting to have the picture taken with him was as big here as it was in Nova Scotia or Ontario. So I'm not sure exactly. It's a very... It's a fascinating social phenomenon. I mean, and Trudeau is a fascinating... I mean, I don't think I'd jump in a pool with my clothes on, uh, but still, you know, the picture on McLean's with him. But still, he's a fascinating social phenomenon. And it's, it's not exactly clear... I mean, perhaps there's a, a marketing genius out there somewhere who can take that appeal that he's got and turn it into something. Uh, it's possible. But uh, but I was amazed. Uh, he stood at a at our community association a couple of years ago at our pancake breakfast thing, and the, the people just lined up. I mean, Bob Ray was there. People were walking straight past Bob Ray, and uh, you know. There were, not, not, there was other, there were all sorts of liberal glitterati there, and they straight passed them and straight to Trudeau, could, you, could I please get my... Could you sign this? Here's my baby. Here's... It was extraordinary. So it's a fascinating question. He has an image. He has an effect. Some of it's no doubt negative. Or at least, you know, politicians are risk-averse, p- particularly risk-averse. So the Kent Hare campaign... Kent Hare loves Trudeau. Right? He's a very big Trudeau supporter. However... He doesn't want to take the chance at having Trudeau here. You know, Trudeau may add ten percent or may take away twenty percent. I don't know. He's doing some calculation, and his view is, you know, just soft sell it. So that's what I can tell you. Yeah.
4: Uh, thank you, Mr. Chair. My name is Joseph Natuk. Uh Interesting discussion. I was here last night, and and it's quite revealing. And your presentation this this morning or this afternoon is as well. My question is: You know, I've always, as a, pu- a former public servant, not in this province, I've always wondered what qualifications do our elected, our potential elected representatives that run for uh, for, for for their positions have? And uh, quite frankly, I think historically or in the world, there are places that, that there are certain qualifications you must have. Before you can throw your hat into the, uh, the, you know, to be to be elected or to run for a position in government. So, do you have an opinion on that? Because it's it's always baffled me. You know, we have some real interesting people running, and I'm not quite sure that uh, they're have any qualifications to be yeah. leaders or, or, or helping us in the society. No okay. quite seriously, yeah. and I yeah. really would like yeah. your opinion on well, that. Well,
1: okay. Um, uh, again, I, I'm probably a bit contrarian on this. The, the, I don't know of many countries, I can't think of one, but that have educational, for example, requirements for candidates, but there may be some that I don't know of. Certainly some countries like America, you have to have been born in the, on, on American soil to, be, to run for president. Uh, things like that. And we know that Ted Cruz from that famous Albertan has just rescinded his Canadian citizenship and, uh, and just to confirm, he was, in fact, that because his mother was an American at the time... He, so it's not American soil, but you have to meet the obligations of the Constitution. So he's considered to be American because his mother was American when he was born, even though he was born in Calgary. Um, you know, there's a, there's a real problem with uh, anything that reduces the pool from which we select candidates... There is a, I know there is an honourable attempt to say, no, we should get good candidates, why don't we have some set of prerequisites and then we'll guarantee we'll get good candidates. But you actually don't. Why? Because the greatest strength of any society is in its diversity. So as you reduce the pool from which you select candidates, you nearly always do at least as much damage to the way you represent that society in that community, uh, uh, you represent that community in its parliament. So although... For example, we used to have limitations on... You used to have a, have a certain amount of property, a certain amount of wealth before we could run. Uh, that was common in all the world. Uh, did that do us any good? It certainly guaranteed that we got better educated people because at the time you needed a lot of money to get a good education and have the leisure to get a good education. So it was consistent with selecting better educated people but at the cost of not representing ordinary people. So the trouble with any plan for selecting a subset of people as better or more, uh, you know, better qualified is that you always do some damage to some group uh, that is at least as bad as the benefit you gain, I think. I, I would say worse. A, more, more, uh, a bigger damage than the benefit you gain from selecting from a subset. I'm a great believer in the evening effects of power. If we want a democracy, one of its great strengths is its inherent diversity, a sort of chaos... And if you want, the greatest um, bulwark against awfulness, tyranny, is actually the natural chaos embedded in democracy. And this is captured with what Churchill said about democracy is a terrible form of government, it's just better than everything else. And he's right. It's an awful way to make decisions, it's messy, it's chaotic, but its chaos is part of our protection against tyranny. So. Thank you
4: very much.
0: With that note, uh, thank you very much, uh, Dr. Sayer, for uh, speaking speaking to us today on this very timely topic. Uh, Just a quick reminder, folks, before you leave. um, Next week, our topic is uh, remote sensing. What can it tell us about climate change? So that's our topic next week. So enjoy your afternoon, and uh, thanks again for coming.